and welcome to the Editor's Podcast for the August 2023 edition of Practical Neurology, the journal that walks the talk and tells us about the practice of neurology. So neurology is a team sport and so the journal has two editors, we're Phil Smith and Garrett Fuller. And Garrett, a particular challenge each time for us editors is to find the common theme between the articles in the issue and uh, to write the editor's highlight that apparently very few people read. But you've been working at this this time. What What is the common thread with the articles this time, Garrett? Thank you, Phil. So crucially, there often isn't a thread or there there isn't really a, an obvious thread until you take a step back and suddenly you realise that actually the whole approach to practical technology allows several different things to throw up. And, and the thread this, this time round I've taken from a blog by a chap called Ian Leslie, who talks about um, a phenomenon called explore and exploit, which is a computer-based issue, which tries, as well as a biological phenomenon, which actually I think is really helpful. So the idea is that every activity that we do, uh, and the uh, the example they give is a relatively superficial one, which is choosing your you're going choosing a restaurant to go to to eat. You can either go and explore new restaurants you could try and find somewhere new to eat or you could go to your favorite restaurant and you can see that both of these things have slightly different uh, um, benefits and risks obviously if you've got a favorite restaurant you know you're going to go to that and it it achieves uh, a nice meal but it may not be the best restaurant and if you explore you may find better restaurants so you've got these two different approaches to the same problem and actually, it's quite interesting if you think about most journals. Uh, again, most journals, for the most part, are exploring. They're tending to try and find new things, different things. And in practical neurology, what we tend to do is we tend to try and exploit what is already known. So, you know, there's a standing joke that anything that gets into new in practical neurology that is new is either a misprint or an error. Uh, and the idea being that we're so focused on uh, exploiting what we know. And I think we've got quite a number of articles that really highlight that. But they also point out that there's a little bit of a spectrum because sometimes even things that um, we're still exploring, actually we, we have the opportunity to exploit. So, so you can see that it's, it's, it's a spectrum of, of thinking, but it's quite an interesting and different way to think of things. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so so actually the first paper, I think we could say, is uh, is fairly new, new for practical neurology, because this is a very practical paper, but it's something that will need repeated updates in years to come. And this is our editor's choice, actually, first-line immunosuppression in neuromuscular disease. It's by Michael Foster, Michael Lunn, and Ashling Carr. And Garrett, you've been having a closer look at this paper. So I think this is a perfect example of how you exploit what is already known. Nothing within this paper should come as a surprise to anyone because it isn't new. And yet what um, the authors have done is, is bring together a really helpful review of how to approach this really very common problem. And obviously, uh, they're talking about neuromuscular immunosuppression, but actually, we use immunosuppression in quite a range of different neurological conditions. And and broadly speaking, the rules and the risks and benefits are are largely similar. And what they've they've done is they've drawn together information, not just from neurology and the neurology trials, which they do cite and and frequently are relatively limited in... in, um, the amount of information they can give us. But there's obviously also lots of information from uh, rheumatology, dermatology, uh, and other specialties so that uh, you can try and bring these things together. 
And, and I'm not going to go into any great detail here because this obviously will be the basis for the Editor's Choice podcast, which I thoroughly recommend because Amy will be interviewing the, uh, Amy Ross Russell will be interviewing the authors and going through this in quite a lot more detail. But, but broadly speaking, what they do is they take you through the range of different agents that you can use and how to use them, what you have to worry about before you start making a choice about which kind of agent to use. And uh, they've got some very nice images and flow charts to help you with that. The idea that you you make an informed decision about what the treatment should be, you get informed consent, you consider whether you need induction and how you approach induction. You, You have to have some sort of planned monitoring and then obviously some sort of stopping criteria. And then they focus a lot of the time on what you need to do before you start treating immunosuppression with immunosuppression. So obviously tuberculosis, for example, is quite a risk. How do you screen for that? Uh, What other things do you need to screen for? What do you then need to monitor? And obviously they go through the the, the range of different agents to use, um, why you might choose one agent over another, and then how you would go ahead and um, uh, use them. And, And I think this is sensationally practical. And I think the authors have done as an additional service because they they have given supplementary uh, entries on the website, which include patient information sheets, which you can obviously uh, allocate and, and dish out, uh, so to save everyone the, the difficulty of repeating it up and down the country. So this is, I think, a, going to prove to be a really well used resource. And as you say, Phil, something we're going to need to to be updating. Yeah, sensational paper. And um, and it really does what it says in the abstract. That is, it maximizes clinical recovery with minimal iatrogenic risk. And the beauty of this paper, as you say, Garrett, is, is that it's uh, it may be about neuromuscular disorders on the title, but the principles there apply to other branches of neurology and they apply to other specialties, rheumatology, oncology, dermatology, hematology. And, and it's actually from those specialties that these guidelines are partly derived. So it describes not just how to prescribe, but gives very helpful summaries of the additional monitoring, particularly relating to bone health, for example, and emphasizing that it's not just the risk of the high-dose steroids, but the immobility of neuromuscular diseases that's a problem with bone health, cardiovascular health, and uh, the big section really on preventing reactivation of opportunistic infections, pneumocystis and TB in particular, and also looking at future fertility as well, pregnancy and breastfeeding. So it's really, it's got it all. And, uh, you know, and it doesn't, uh, and it also uh, emphasizes importantly that immunosuppression is relatively high risk. We do it a lot and we maybe get blasé, but it's, uh, uh, it's high risk and it's really important to get a definite diagnosis at the start before beginning this because you may not get a second chance to get that secure diagnosis from tissue that treatment is individualized, as is the discussion of risk individualized as well, that it's about shared decision-making. As, and uh, as you mentioned, Garrett, stopping criteria. I've got to know, you've got to set out beforehand when to stop this because uh, uh, that's an important part of the management. I, th- I think it's it's superb. And the authors do say, yes, in a couple of years' time in their own department, they'll be updating their criteria for uh, the prescribing and maybe we will be welcoming back from time to time uh, updates on this paper yeah it's full of some very nice gems i mean they've got a nice little table showing you know what you tell people with steroids to do if they get sick you know um, sick day rules and uh, which obviously varies according to the 
the uh, dose of steroids you're on. So, but really practical, and, and it's something I think we'll, we'll be revisiting and rereading as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. But one other thing I thought was that the the fertility things were quite important. So uh, obviously, I knew that we would stop methotrexate a month before pregnancy, but stopping bisphosphonates three months before, and also advising men using mycophenolate mofetil to use contraception because of a theoretical risk of genotoxicity. That was something that may be under review whether that really is necessary. But all, all of those things are individual gems in this paper, which are, are highly useful. So, Phil, our next paper is another relatively common issue, which is the effect that alcohol can have on the central nervous system. And I think you're going to be taking through this paper from Meta Wolf, Aaron Menon, Maria Otto, Natasha Fullerton, and John Paul Leach. Yeah, from uh, Glasgow, Scotland. So, this is clearly an important paper. It's a big paper. It covers a lot of ground from the public health issues of uh, alcohol to the uh, chemistry of alcohol CNS effects, what neurologists need to do to recognise alcohol dependence, and then the main section, which is the clinical effects of alcohol on the central nervous system, the acute and chronic, direct and indirect. So to, to unpick that, the public health issues, I mean, I think we're all aware just how commonly alcohol is used, but it's something that's almost endorsed by governments because 2.5% of the UK's GDP, for example, uh, comes from alcohol revenue. And how common is it in the clinic? Well, we hear that 40% of men and 20% of women drink more than the recommended maximum in the UK. And you can't help feeling that amongst neurology patients, and particularly those in the emergency unit and first seizure clinic, it's, it'll be much higher than that. So there are important public health issues here. But so what should neurologists do? Well, they need to include a focused alcohol history as part of neurological history taking. And in doing so, thinking of depression and suicidality, because these are closely linked to uh, excess alcohol consumption chronically. So then a, you know, a very big section on the clinical effects and naming all of the various conditions. And uh, just to take a few of these, well, obviously, there's acute intoxication. But in that situation, the important thing is to think of the differential diagnosis, not just to write someone off as being intoxicated, but think subdural, think hypoglycemia, DEFG, don't ever forget glucose, think structural brain lesion. So it's more you're going to save more lives by thinking of the alternatives. There's a thing called blackouts, which I don't think I'd really come across in the neurological literature much before in this context. Blackouts are well known in the alcohol world where you just lose memory for a gap and it's related to the speed of increase of alcohol in the bloodstream. So, uh, And it's particularly in young people who have developing hippocampus. So blackouts um, in that sense, important. Uh, then there's the effects of withdrawal, including delirium tremens. There are the seizures, and the seizures are mostly withdrawal, but uh, maybe acute toxicity, though that is probably rare and probably more related to other compounds ingested at the same time. Most seizures from alcohol are withdrawal, but they are not trivial. 
and there is a one-year mortality, for example, of 35% if you're admitted to an ITU with a seizure related to alcohol dependence. So these are important things. Uh, The chronic effects include alcohol brain damage. We know about Wernicke's and Korsakoff's, of course, dementia due to alcohol, atrophy. This lovely word, Marcia Favor Bignami, um, the corpus callosal syndrome, the disconnection syndrome relating to edema and cystic lesions in the corpus callosum from alcohol and the osmotic demyelination. And there's an emphasis these authors have given for fetal alcohol spectrum syndrome. I think really importantly, actually, that uh, the, the effects on the fetus, the developing brain, are common and important and uh, include a specific syndrome. So uh, you know, I think the, the there are also effects, you know, acute indirect things like trauma to the brain and exposure to other substances. These are equally important to uh, uh, people drinking a lot of alcohol and the chronic effects, including hepatic encephalopathy and chronic trauma. So there's a lot in here. And it's uh, a paper, I think, that will be particularly important for those in first seizure clinics where alcohol consumption is undoubtedly very high, but it is a a substance that is responsible for a lot of neurological disorder. And uh, uh, I think we need to know more about this substance and people's relationship with it to, to help people best. Yeah, I agree, Phil, and I, and I would just endorse the fact that the, the blackouts that they describe is a phenomenon I've heard people talk about, but actually I don't think it's really quite entered the neurological literature as a, a confounder because clearly someone who has no recollection of uh, events would make you worry about seizures and all kinds of other things, whereas recognising it can just simply be a straight toxic effect of a particularly very dramatic alcohol binge does change one's thinking a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a paper that is, you know, focused on prevention, really, because anything to do with alcohol is is really in the hands of the user. And it needs people very much to be motivated to make that change. And many people are not at the stage that we see them, uh, even recognising that there's a problem. And so uh, the authors also go into that to some extent as well, talking about the the CAGE questionnaire, for example, um, to help people to recognise that their relationship with alcohol is, is uh, not a good one. But you know, I do think neurologists perhaps do have a responsibility to to point these things out to people, not just to dismiss it. And in, in you know, people need a nudge sometimes to from a medical professional to to make that change. So I think that this is implied really here, but not necessarily explicitly uh, set out how we would go about that. So the next paper we're going to discuss is. Primary Central Nervous System Lymphoma, a Practical Guide for Neurologists, which is really probably more exploration for most neurologists. And this paper comes from uh, Tony Saad, Alexander Tuck, uh, Farid Golistani, Paul Smith and Rory McCulloch, my colleagues based here at Gloucester. And this is a slightly unusual paper for us because most of the time we take a a symptom or syndromic-based approach to reviews and, and similar. And on this occasion, we've actually got a review based on a specific diagnosis or a group of diagnoses, because obviously it's a, a slightly heterogeneous group, which is the primary CNS lymphomas. And the reason for doing that and the reason it's helpful for us to know is that 
most neurologists will see patients with um, a mass, and that will be the commonest uh, explanation uh, or presentation for lymphoma. And typically speaking, you, you will discover it's a lymphoma on biopsy. So it's clearly you've got a mass, and there may be pointers one way or the other. But broadly speaking, you need to get a biopsy. And when you get the biopsy, you know it's a lymphoma. And very often, it's, it's a bit uncertain as to what's going to happen to those patients and uh, how is it different from gliomas and all those other things, for which the, uh, obviously are very much more... Uh, common. So um, primary CNS lymphoma only accounts for about 4% of intracranial uh, lesions or intracranial neoplasms. And so as such, it, it will often come as a little bit of a surprise uh, to the diagnosis. And it, and it, the dominant presentation, and they go through the range of presentation, are those of intracranial mass. And, you know, unsurprisingly, focal symptoms being the commonest, neuropsychiatric symptoms being quite commonly uh, raised intracranial pressure. There is involvement with the eye, which can be distracting, and so it's obviously worthwhile being aware of that to look in the eyes. And then to a certain extent, the, the reputation for lymphoma is it's often difficult to diagnose, and they address this in, in a number of different ways, because obviously the majority of the time it's relatively straightforward. You've got a mass, you get a biopsy, you get an answer. But sometimes you'll have something and you'll give them the patient steroids, and very often you give them steroids for good symptomatic relief, and actually one of the background myths, which actually turns out to be true, is that actually patients with lymphoma can often respond really dramatically well to lymphoma, to steroids with the, the lesion all but disappearing. And they, they present the evidence which is relatively limited, but argue that um, giving people steroids symptomatically is appropriate, but uh, and it only reduces the yield to a marginal degree. However, in those patients where you get a dramatic reduction in um, steroids uh, with steroids, and you're not considering one of the alternatives like tumor factor MS or those kind of things, then uh, clearly taking the patients off steroids and considering rebiopsing if the lesion appears again after sort of four to six weeks is a reasonable approach. They talk about where you have to look for lymphoma elsewhere, the investigations you need to do um, elsewhere, and, and they've got a very nice sequential workup as to what you need to do, checking for uh, HIV and all these kind of things, using a PET scan and so on, and actually infrequently using things like bone marrow as an informative way forward. So they, they take you through that, but I think the, the, the bit that I found most interesting and most surprising was the impact of newer... Uh, treatments in lymphoma. And if I can find this, the data here, we can see that if you have an optimum treatment, there can be a, a, a two-year survival of 70% or so, which is actually remarkably better than one would rather anticipate. So the, there uh, are a range of different regimes to use, but with really quite a good level of response, particularly in younger patients uh, in those with uh, good functional levels at, at onset. So I think it's, it's quite helpful to frame this relatively rare condition because we'll be involved in these, the care of these patients to a certain degree, oftentimes at the beginning, and, and knowing the, the range of options available, I think is quite helpful. Yeah, yeah, because um, lymphoma, of course, commonly features in the journal. Uh, it's common in difficult cases and CPCs, so disproportionately we we, we see it uh, in in the papers. But um, yeah, I I, th I thought that uh, there were some very interesting bits to this paper. 
I learned, for example, that the brain is not the only immune-privileged organ, that the eye and the testis uh, are also important. And as you say, that the eye is where lymphoma can flourish and sometimes present even, and that um, the testis, we need to scan it with an ultrasound in men with suspected systemic lymphoma, So, because PET might not detect it. So I found that interesting. The other one was this nice picture of what they call the notch sign. And it's the way that lymphomas grow so rapidly and might grow irregularly, uh, unlike um, a glioblastoma, which uh, tends to be more rounded. A, a uh, lymphoma can be notched with uh, uh, vis- visible on the scan. The other thing that I felt was helpful was the how seldom CSF gives the diagnosis on its own and how seldom it makes a biopsy redundant. If you've got a mass, then it will only be 7.5% of cases where the CSF can can give the diagnosis and therefore you don't need to biopsy. So biopsy is still the key thing and you'd be very lucky to get it on CSF alone and uh, you w- wouldn't do CSF unless it was there was no mass probably. And then as you mentioned the phenomenon of the vanishing lesions that uh, we all know that you give steroids and lymphomas may just melt away and that this has a differential diagnosis that's important that um, if you have in a series of melting away lesions vanishing brain lesions half have primary lymphoma in the nervous system half have tumefactive demyelination and a couple of other things we need to think about are neurosarcoid and vasculitis as well so that's a paper in itself really vanishing lesions as a little aside i also learned a legal term from this which i wasn't expecting to Argumentum a fortiori, uh, a fortiori meaning to describe an argument that gives a stronger reason than one's already been accepted. So uh, they tell us that as well as uh, identifying the fact that the thing has disappeared, we then need to go on and look for other possible reasons for why a, a, a lesion may have disappeared. So a little aside there. Uh, <laughs> Legal learning, who would have thought it? <laughs> Legal learning, it's all in there. Right, so Garrett, the, um, the next one is um, is focal cortical dysplasia. So this is a practical guide for neurologists. It's from Florence in Italy and from uh, Queen Square in London. It is by a team of absolutely top authors, really, on this. Simona Balestrini, Carmen Barber, Maria Tom and Renzo Guerini. And... It's also actually reviewed by Daniela Piltz, who used to be in Cardiff and is another top person on this condition. So I feel we're very privileged to get them to write this article for us. Uh, It's the sort of paper, and we have these occasionally, where it's perhaps more of a reference document to put on the shelf and is not necessarily going to be in every neurologist's everyday practice. But this is a paper packed with uh, important detail to do with the definition, classification, and uh, the management of cortical, of focal cortical dysplasia. Um, I have to say I found the classification uh, challenging to read, actually. I mean, I, I deal with quite a lot of people with focal cortical dysplasia, and, uh, and still I think there's a way to go in getting the classification 
understandable. For example, there are three types of focal cortical dysplasia, FCD types 1, 2, and 3, straightforward so far. Each has a subtype. One has four subtypes, A to D, others have just two. So we got all of those. And then instead of types four and five, we've got a different section altogether, mild MCD it's called, and then one called MOGI, which is mild malformation with oligodendroglial hyperplasia in epilepsy. So, you know, it, it, this is the new classification. This is the latest iteration. So maybe the next time it will be even tidier and even easier to understand. The thing about the genetics of this is that there are two main mechanisms for focal cortical dysplasia. Uh, the first is a somatic activating mutation of mTOR, the mechanistic target of rapamycin, so mTOR, the tuberous sclerosis gene. So it's activating that. But the other thing is an inactivating mutation of repressors, so a sort of disinhibition of signaling pathways. And uh, that's another lot of genes that do this. And this is a double hit because rather than the whole of the body being affected, it affects just a focal area in the brain. So the importance of knowing about the mTOR pathway is that it opens a role for the drugs that we might use already in tuberous sclerosis. So Everolimus, for example, a rapamycin uh, inhibitor, may be good for focal cortical dysplasia and could complement surgery. Um, as it happens, also ketogenic diet we hear can inhibit the mTOR pathway and therefore may be useful as well. So this, this is full of sort of new theoretical ways forward as well. I know the role of 7T MRI, not actually dwelt upon in this paper, but um, I know for you know, in terms of identifying people with focal epilepsy who have no lesion on their MR scan, some will have a 7T MRI and it will show. In others, we just infer that there must be some focal cortical dysplasia, but it's as yet invisible even with the, the best imaging. So I yeah I, I I like the paper very much. It will it will help my practice. I will reread the classification and really try to get my head around it and perhaps put it on my notice board. And when we next speak, Geraint, I'll have learnt it by heart. I, I look forward to it, and I, I I'll cut out it so I can test you at the appropriate time, Phil. Um, I, I agree. I thought this was very interesting, and part of the problem with cortical dysplasia is you 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 tend to come across it in sort of a number of relatively simple practical things. One, obviously, is an entirely uh, incidental finding. You know, what should you do about something where you can see these changes? And, and it's quite helpful to have uh, an understanding as to what you're looking at. Uh, those, uh, that situation, obviously, the differential can be between uh, a low-grade glioma and cortical dysplasia, and understanding more about cortical dysplasia helps that differential. And the, the other situation is the one you refer to, which is obviously people with focal onset epilepsy. And, uh, you know, whether that's relevant uh, and is it a surgical target what you can do about it and so on um so i uh, know i think i thought it, it's really helpful because actually uh, it, this is even though it's neuropathologically based this is a changing field you know as you mentioned the uh, the, the classifications are being updated r repeatedly yeah and and the other thing is i always thought in my ignorance that cortical dysplasia was a migration problem rather like uh, 
course, periventricular nodular heterotopia and band heterotopia are migrations. I always thought there was just a focal area that hadn't migrated properly. And uh, and so I sort of half expected this paper to come in with a whole load about the embryology of the brain development. And, and it's not mentioned, didn't get a mention. It does seem it's mainly a genetic thing. And if there is any migration, then that's uh, very, very genetically determined and locally determined. So it, it, there's a lot to learn about this. As there is about coding, Garrett. So um, the uh, the next thing is how is outpatient neurology diagnostic coding, and this is by the team from Lancaster University mainly, which is uh, Headley Emsley, but also a whole team really from uh, the NNAG, the National Neurology and Neurosurgery Advisory Group, etc. And um, I notice you're a referee on this paper, so you know a lot about it. You've 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 seen it, you've read it. It's part of your work with uh, with GERFT. So, Garrett, your thoughts on this paper? So uh, this is, I mean, coming back to the the theme we started off with, the idea of explore and exploit. I mean, one of the difficulties that we have with outpatients is that we don't actually know what we do. We know how many patients we see. But uh, for the most part, we don't know how many have headaches, how many have migraine, how many have epilepsy, how many have MS. And uh, as a result, it's actually quite hard to make plans or even understand how services are being delivered in different parts of the country. And indeed, if you've suddenly got a new initiative and we had um, work about CGRP and so on, you, you don't suddenly know what's going to happen with that, uh, these large changes in neurology practice and, and how we can accommodate them. And obviously, one of the ways that you would be better informed is if you knew what was actually happening at the moment. How many patients with focal epilepsy being followed up? You know, how many got primary general? All this kind of different stuff. And part of the problem is in the UK, because it's, everything's done through the health service, there's no billing structure. So there's none of the other incentives to try and uh, produce coding. And broadly speaking, most places the coding is simply whether they're a new patient or a follow-up patient and and even the distinction between those two can be blurred if you've got a patient returning after a number of years with the same problem is it a follow-up or is it a new and, and you know all these different issues this team is uh, broadly trying to work out what would practically uh, allow us to deliver outpatient coding because in the balance with the benefits that one could have from a, a greater insight as to what's going on is the resource that one would have to allocate to try and work out, you know, to, to actually um, use coding systems. And uh, over the years, a variety of people have used specific and often personally developed coding systems uh, to try and uh, help understand their practice. Oftentimes, people will use standard things like ICD-10 and, and so on. Um, the conclusion from the work that this group put together is that, that actually if, if you use a SNOMED CT, which is one particular relatively flexible coding system, and you use the relatively broad headings, you should be able to code most patients relatively straightforwardly in a modest number of groupings. So in other words, being able to turn this into a reality without a huge allocation of resources should become practically possible. And in many respects, I think the idea that we can do it and the idea that it seems likely to be something that's going to be introduced at some stage, if we can be involved in trying to work out the best way of doing it, will we'll get us the best uh, and most practically useful solution. 
So I, I think this is a plan or this is a, a proposal to try and get us to a, somewhere where we can actually understand what we're doing rather better. So this is a tool for exploration. And then once we've explored, we can then exploit. Yeah, and it's maybe written from the point of view of NHS England, but it is worldwide applicable because uh, we, we cannot do our work properly unless we know what cases are prevalent and how cases are managed and so forth, and that requires coding. So it is surprising, actually, that outpatients are not mandated to be, to be coded. It's clearly important, as the authors point out, that this is clinician-led, that this is not just done by an administrator who doesn't know the patient. Very important. But if it's to be clinician-led, it has to be useful to them. It has to be pragmatic and quick. It has to be something that doesn't take a huge amount of extra time, and they have to see the benefit of why they are doing the coding. So a sort of standardised approach will enhance its usefulness as well if it's the same across every department in the country. And you can envisage in, in the medium term, you know, um, this is the kind of thing which could be enhanced by uh, AI-type strategies to try and make sure you can uh, link in to, to you know, standard letters and so on. So I think this is the beginning rather than the end of what I think is going to be quite an important scheme. A work in progress. Yeah, thank you. Right, the next paper is what neurologists can do for neuro-oncology patients. And this is Fiona McEvitt from Sheffield, who has used her clinical experience to set out where neurologists can maybe fit into sometimes a separate neuro-oncology service. And I think a lot of this paper is uh, common sense that neurologists clearly must are involved at the beginning when the tumour is diagnosed, and there's a nice overlap here with the lymphoma paper we've already discussed, they will be involved clearly in the specialist management of uh, complications such as epilepsy. And perhaps a little surprisingly that we would want them more involved also in the palliative care aspect of uh, patients with malignant uh, brain tumours. So the things I was going to, to highlight are a couple of interesting points around the epilepsy of tumours, because I suppose I'd sort of thought, well, you know, focal epilepsy, any of the drugs might be pretty uh, useful here, worth trying them all. But, um, and I would tended to have favoured levetiracetam simply because it doesn't have interactions and therefore good for people taking steroids or taking cytotoxic drugs. But actually, Fiona has pointed out a couple of other important reasons for choosing particular anti-seizure medications. So, for example, levetiracetam enhances P53 MGMT inhibition. Now, this is important because it means that levetiracetam might actually be an adjunct to uh, drugs like temozolomide uh, in the treatment of glioblastoma multiforme. In other words, we get some additional benefit rather than just the anti-seizure action. And this may be why we're hearing elsewhere in the paper that enzyme-inducing drugs, carbamazepine and so forth, tend to have a poorer outcome. It's only marginal, but uh, overall with people with brain tumours, not just with the seizure control. I'd known previously that valproic had some potential anti-tumor effects through its action on histone deacetylate inhibitor, but 
actually, Fiona points out in the paper that valparate may actually potentially increase the risk of bone marrow toxicity when it's combined with certain chemotherapies. So maybe we should think twice about using valparate as well in this. She gives a, a little nod towards lecosamide, though the references there are to an observational study and an enrichment study. So I think sort of two cheers for lecosamide here. I think the, the first treatment of choice would certainly be levetiracetam and drugs that don't have interactions. But worth thinking about these other actions of drugs as well relating to the tumour. The paper also gives a useful reminder about the problems with checkpoint inhibitors. So here, neurologists are likely to be involved. Checkpoint inhibitors used for melanoma and renal cell cancer, for example. And uh, this... Um, the risk of peripheral neuropathy, Guillain-Barre, and this sort of triple M thing, myasthenia gravis, myositis, myocarditis, the antibody-negative myasthenia with a very high CK that can come with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. And also some mention of CAR-T as well. Uh, we're going we're to come across these cases in our practice, in our interactions with haematologists. So some useful cases at the end as well, describing things like SMART syndrome. And uh, overall, I think this is a, a, a pragmatic, useful paper, a, a reminder really of the sort of things that we can do to help people with brain tumours. It's done through the medium of an MDT. We can help people mostly that way. But uh, a bit of additional knowledge about the, the anti-seizure meds in, in tumours would be good as well for patients. And I think it does highlight the fact that actually across the country we have relatively few neuro-oncologists. The majority of neurologists who come across patients with cancer will be generalists rather than specialists. So um, having the perspective from somebody who obviously majors in this area is very helpful. So the next one is how to set up a functional neurological disorder education group. Uh, this is Biba Stanton and colleagues from St George's Hospital in London and with from King's College Hospital in London. So important how to do it paper. Garrett, you've been having a look at this one. Yeah, so I th again, this is one of those interesting ones where we don't have the evidence we would like, and yet clearly we have the patients who need some sort of support. And this is sharing uh, experience of a group that obviously look after lots of patients with functional neurological disease. And w one of the, the interventions that they've set up, and they, they've got some uh, evidence that it seems to be a, a useful thing, is this patient education group. And what they do is they describe their experience with this, and, and they even include you know, the timetable of their questionnaire, their uh, session. And, uh, you know, what do they do? Well, they, they, there's a neurologist uh, giving an introduction. Uh, there's some sort of story of a service user, the physiotherapist, the psychologist, and a neuropsychiatrist all speak. And then there's the opportunity for, for panel discussion. And uh, they make the point that uh, you know, this is aimed to try and help patients with functional neurological disease come to see the full spectrum of the, the nature of the condition and uh, hopefully recognise the need to engage with all these different modalities of treatment um, where that's appropriate. And they explain that, you know, you, you probably want to avoid um, people asking questions specifically to the patient who's given their experience because that tends to be unhelpful. They've 
highlight the fact that patients won't be getting any magical experience in order to manage their expectations. And clearly having an education group, it doesn't replace treatment, but clearly it helps that information giving phase of, of management. I think it's the kind of thing where lots of places will not be able to uh, set up something like this. And yet, clearly, uh, if, if this is the kind of model which does work, then hopefully more places will try and do that. Uh, and I think highlighting the interaction between the neurologists and the neuropsychiatrists, psychiatrists and uh, psychologists is perhaps the most useful thing that one will be able to achieve in this. The fact that you've got a united and consistent set of messages to try and help this patient, this group, patient group, who, you know, I think are being increasingly recognised and very reasonably are wanting a greater access to more appropriate specific treatments. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like the paper because I, I think it, it is something that we perhaps all ought to be doing a bit more. We're all seeing a lot of people with functional disorders. Uh, we don't really have anywhere good to send them to to complement any treatment that we're giving. And uh, here, I think the group have set out a know a their way built on their experience and and shaped according to uh, issues that have cropped up that they've uh, told us how we might do this and maybe how we could adapt it as well to being online as well um i i was and i heard uh, Bieber stanton talking about this at the abn and tried to set up one of these and have come across an issue really of non-attendance that, that people say they'll come but don't come and i think really we are still learning how best to do it in our department something that is really important that um they include is having a u user perspective as you say it, it sort of adds great credibility if you have someone who has been helped or maybe someone who's not been helped even uh, but who is confident enough to be able to speak to a group and can it can help people in the group to know that they are not alone and that other people have engaged and uh, it, it can seem otherwise that there is nothing at all out there for them. But important, as you mentioned, that those people are protected in the session and are not quizzed uh, in a sort of uncontrolled way by the audience. So it's either a video recording of them speaking or it's no questions at the end. So, and and maybe disappointingly for some readers, as you mentioned, Garrett, it doesn't replace the treatment that we should be giving as individual neurologists. It's not a substitute. It is to complement what we do. We send them to the group. Maybe we're part of the group when we, when we deliver it. Uh, and then they're still under the referring neurologist. I mean, I think actually this will change practice. I think it's maybe the beginning but it, I would urge people to look at this and you know, think about trying to set up one of these groups. It will build locally according to your, your uh, own uh, way. But I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of benefit here for people understanding that um, they're not alone and to hear a bit more information about something that otherwise might have been thought of as a mystery illness. And our final uh, case that we're discussing is a, a slight a variation on the mere and my neurological illness. I mean, the majority of patients who report uh, mere and minor neurological illness were very specific need-to-be-neurologists because the key thing is that they're bringing an insight of a treating neurologist to, a con to the condition that they've been treating. But in this one, we have a case near-drowning in Parkinson's disease, common or uncommon, by Robert Rutherford and his uh, treating neurologist, uh, Richard Walsh. 
Phil, you've been looking at this. Yes, well, I mean, this, I think, is the strength of practical neurology, isn't it? This this is the sort of thing that will be embedded in our memory because it's written by uh, an individual with the problem and that person is a doctor with insight into the condition. This is someone actually... Uh, an experienced patient with Parkinson's disease. He's a chest physician, but he's got PD, he's got a deep brain stimulator in. And he is a keen swimmer and found one day, uh, spoiler alert, that uh, when you read this, that he was unable to swim when he was 50 metres into some very deep water and shouts to his dad as that he just can't move and is at serious risk of drowning. Now, being practical neurology, every case has to have some practical learning points. And Robert Rutherford gives us his practical learning from this. Firstly, that every information site on Parkinson's disease should, but at present doesn't, have anything about the risk of drowning uh, that uh, it should do. Uh, because this is a well-recognised problem in the Parkinson's world, but not apparently reaching the information for patients, leaflets, etc. That people with Parkinson's should swim in pools with a regular depth and with lifeguards and so forth, and should definitely not uh, just be swimming like they always used to in open water. And uh, he mentions that some people enjoy the health benefits of a cold plunge, well, you know, they are at double risk if they do that and uh, should stay very close to the sea entry point and use buoyancy aids and this sort of thing. Consider not doing it instead of having an ice bath. And maybe the most surprising of all, his advice is that whereas previously he would have jumped in to save a drowning person, he says, now I would be very frightened to do so. And healthcare advice should be that patients with advanced Parkinson's disease should not enter the water to try to save someone else from drowning. So a surprising message maybe, um, but um, really important and powerful. Uh, I, I think that this will, again, change practice. Yeah, and I think that the, the background obviously is that lots more people are swimming and lots more people are swimming for their health, including patients with Parkinson's disease. I, I, I don't think it's going to aim to try and stop people doing open water swimming, but it's just making sure that if they do so, they have an appropriate flotation life uh, device, which would allow them to, to essentially hang on to it um, if they did freeze and so on. Um, so I think yeah. it isn't quite as draconian a block, but rather more enabling, uh, hopefully. Yeah, and may, maybe just an extra element of the history. You know, we we should take maybe a swimming history uh, as well. But perhaps a, swim, a swimming and an alcohol history. How how we've we've added to everyone's. <laughs> we have, and they got to code it at the end as they've well. They got to code it at the end, including the coding the swimming. So, Garrett, um, I just wanted to finish by mentioning that Marty Samuels, who was a exemplar practical neurologist, a sort of physician and educator, a member of our editorial board. He died in June and I wanted to call out really him as a cheerleader for the journal, someone who contributed through writing and refereeing, but more importantly by encouraging many of the trainees in Boston to submit their papers to us. Uh, I had the fortune to work with him in my sabbatical 10 years ago. I saw him leading by example, always 
patient-centered, always invariably supporting and encouraging trainees. I saw him do a chief's round where he was truly a master at work, taking the history from someone brand new to him, examining them, looking at the investigations, and then coming up with a spot-on diagnosis and management plan for a complex neurological problem. But actually, he was also a general physician qualified as in internal medicine, and uh, he loved neurological disease that uh, overlapped with medicine as well. In February, he wrote the morning report, How to Do It, and he actually did it superbly well and would then email out to lots of grateful recipients a sort of carefully crafted, distilled summary of that morning's report. So we'll miss Marty hugely, a personal friend, but also a true friend of the journal and a champion of the journal. A a wonderful physician, and uh, I think we have a lot to be grateful for everything that he's done. I I remember uh, he delivered an absolutely masterful um, review of misdiagnoses at the ABN, which I think requires a huge amount of courage to be able to go through your mistakes and help us all learn from them. Uh, A a very, very memorable lecture. But I think you were chairing the session and you said there were very clever mistakes that uh, only the very best would have uh, realised they were a mistake. It was things like missing copper for someone with um, no joint position sense loss. It, it, was, um, it was masterful in every way. So... If you have been, thank you for listening to this editor's podcast. We've got two other podcasts attached to each issue. We've got Amy Ross-Russell talking through the editor's choice paper that we've already discussed. We've got Martin Turner with a teaching session with a couple of cases. But uh, until next time, happy reading, happy listening, and goodbye from me, Phil Smith. And goodbye from me, Karen Fuller. <laughs>